Passion Week. We are in that time of the year that we begin to reflect as Christians what Christ has done for us. And just even in our worship this morning, just thinking about what Christ accomplished on that cross for us is amazing. And how many of you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Raise your hand. Yeah, amen, amen. Just that. Just the thought that you are that privileged that the Lord saved you, that the Lord forgave you of all of your sin, that he came and died for you, that you could have eternal life. That's why we're celebrating this week. Look what Christ has done. And my prayer is if you don't know Jesus this morning, that by the end of this service, you'll be giving your life to Christ because what a no better time than Easter time to say I gave my life to Christ. And so with that said, um, we're going to be on a journey this morning. I'm going to really kind of give you the narrative. I'm going to pave the way, if you want to say, leading up to next Sunday, which is Resurrection Sunday. And we're going to look at uh, a narrative this morning, uh, just leading up really to Friday, Good Friday. We're going to have that Good Friday service uh, here. And uh, so I'm going to be sharing uh, in that way this morning. In uh, the book of Acts, in chapter 1, verse 3, we see uh, a word that the old King James uses. It's the word passion. Now the word passion, actually, our English word, we get it from a Latin word, uh, this word passion, but in its original form in Latin, it meant to suffer. And so quite often we hear this week uh, of Easter week, we hear it referred to as the Passion Week. Or we might even say today the Passion Sunday, or we call it Palm Sunday. But it's really that passion of Christ. It's that suffering that Christ suffered on the cross for us. It says in Acts 1-3, it says, To whom also Jesus showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. After his passion. And that's referring to his time on the cross. This Palm Sunday as we call it today, is the beginning of this Passion Week that is going to lead us to next Sunday, which is called Resurrection Sunday. Some call it Easter. I like to call it Resurrection Sunday. I think that's really what it's all about. But this Passion Week, it begins with Jesus riding into Jerusalem as King of the Jews, on the back of a colt. He is going to end this journey, this last week, with his body being placed into a tomb. This morning, my intention is to give us some of the key events that lead really up to this time that they placed Jesus in the tomb. 33 and a half years 
have already passed since the birth of Jesus Christ. It was in that last three and a half years that we call it his public ministry, where Jesus began to go out and to minister to people. And one of the most incredible things to me, even as I was looking at this narrative about the life and the ministry of Jesus, is the perfect timing of it all. He really, every event and every aspect of these events was perfect timing. And you see, everything about Christ coming into this world was perfect timing. His ministry on earth, when it began, was perfect timing. And then even his leaving this earth is all predetermined. You see, this word predetermined is a definition that means that these things were settled, they were decided in heaven in advance by God. And what's so exciting to me about that is the fact that God wasn't making any of this up as he went along. It was all predetermined. Each event, how it took place, down to the very detail was predetermined. And what does that do for you and I? As mere human beings, as we consider the God that created the heavens and the earth had this redemptive plan predetermined. You think about the birth of Jesus Christ, him coming into this world, being predetermined in heaven. When Jesus was baptized and he came out to, to John the Baptist in the wilderness, it was predetermined. For that particular day, that the Son of God would come and be water baptized. His public ministry, the Bible tells us that it started at age 30. That was predetermined. His riding into Jerusalem as King of the Jews was predetermined. I believe to the very day that he rode in. His going to the cross was predetermined. Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem at the appropriate time. He set his face towards Jerusalem. It was predetermined that he must make his way towards Jerusalem and the cross. His resurrection, his ascension. His coming back again. I believe they're all predetermined. That gives me great hope. I like the fact that God already has this worked out. Remember though on numerous occasions. As you read about the life of Jesus in his public ministry. He told people on many occasions including his disciples. He said these words to them. He says, my time has not yet come, which also tells me he knew the perfect time. My time has not yet come. In his 
beginning of his public ministry. Remember the first miracle that Jesus did? Turning the water into wine at the marriage of Canaan. And Jesus' mother came to him at that wedding feast and told Jesus that they were out of wine. And Jesus responded to his mother in that moment. And he says, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And then in John chapter 7, we read where Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. It says in verse 1 that he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews, they sought to kill him. And we're told that even Jesus' brothers told Jesus, why are you trying to hide Jesus? They said, go into Judea so that your disciples can see your miracles. And they said to Jesus, this is his brother saying this, you can't do these things in secret, Jesus. In essence, they were, they were really mocking their brother. They didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah at that time. And then Jesus says to his brothers, he says, my time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up, he says to his brothers, you go up to this feast. I am not going yet going up to this feast for my, not, my time has not yet fully come. Jesus knew precisely when and how and where he should walk and how he should arrive, when he should arrive. We read that when he arrived in Jerusalem, when he finally did come to Jerusalem, the Jews came looking for him. And after Jesus spoke to them about his doctrine and his authority, we're told that the Jews sought to kill him, but then we're told that no one was able to lay hold of him because his hour had not yet come. You see, even holding back the hand of his enemies, they were unable to seize Jesus because his hour had not yet come. Let me ask you, who's in control? Sometimes we look at our world and we think, is God really in control? God is in control of your life, every detail of your life. He knows precisely where you're going to be today and tomorrow. He knows what's going on in your life. In John chapter 8, we read that Jesus was speaking to the Jews in the treasury one day. And, it said, and Jesus said to them, Is it not written in your law that if the testimony of two men is true, I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. And they said to Jesus, Where is your Father? And Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And these words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. 
I make this point, I want you to see this point, that precisely what we're reading, even in the events, this Passion Week, was completely figured out, planned out in heaven before the events even took place. Listen to what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 1.9. It says, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. He's speaking to us as Christians, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus. And then it says this, before time began, before time began, you see, God knew you before you were even formed in the womb. God knew you. God knew that you would receive him. It was predetermined before time began. That's amazing to me. I don't know about you, but that's amazing to me. But now Jesus, he knew that his time was drawing near. The foreordained plan of salvation, the redemption for man's sin that had already been predetermined, already had been worked out, was ready now to be unveiled to this world. Jesus and his disciples, they began this descent to Jerusalem from the northern area of that region of Galilee. And they began to travel south on the eastern side of the Jordan River. They traveled through the city of Jericho where Zacchaeus would meet Jesus on that occasion. And then they came to the city, a small village we might call it, of Bethany. A small village just east of Jerusalem where there were, where it's probable that this was the place that Jesus was going to use for his base camp place for himself and his disciples that they would stay. They came to their friends that lived in this city, Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, to their home. It was in this village that Jesus would, according to John's gospel, perform the seventh miracle that's recorded in John's gospel. That was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And I think that we, and it's important to note that this miracle and even the timing of this miracle was important. Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. It was going to prove to his disciples. It was actually going to prove to this whole world that Jesus Christ has power over death. He has power over the grave. We read in John 11.45 that after this miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, many Jews believed and they put their faith in him. But we also read that after Jesus raised him from the dead, it says in chapter 11, verse 53, that from that day on, these religious leaders, they plotted to put Jesus to death. It was that miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead 
It caused even these religious leaders to even more so seek to want to put him to death. And then after the raising of Lazarus, we're told in, in verse 54, 1154, therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from Bethany into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there he remained with his disciples. And then we're told, and the Passover of the Jews was near. The Passover of the Jews is where every practicing Jew would go. Jesus and his disciples would make their way to Jerusalem for Passover. We're told that and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover. They would come. It was actually a week prior to Passover that they would be making preparations. It would be a, a week of celebration and a week of preparation as they prepared for Passover. And they sought Jesus and they spoke among themselves. They all the people that were there after this raising as a raising of Lazarus from the dead. The people were stirred. The people were in the city. They were waiting to see was Jesus and his disciples going to arrive here for the feast. And both the chief priests and the Pharisees, they had given a command that if anyone knew where Jesus was, they should report it that they might seize him. They were looking. He was, they were looking for him. And then in John 12, 1, we're told, then six days before the Passover, we're told that Jesus came back to Bethany, where Lazarus had been raised from the dead. He comes back into this little village. He goes back to Mary and Martha in his home. And we're told that Jesus sat down with them that night. Can you put your... Picture that in your mind. Here's Jesus sitting with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Week, maybe a couple weeks later, sitting there with them at the table, having a meal together. It's amazing. And Mary, here's Martha serving. Here's Mary that is sitting there with Jesus, overwhelmed in her heart with her love for Jesus. She takes this costly perfume oil that she had been saving. It was worth one year's wages. And she begins to anoint the feet of Jesus and wiping it with her hair. And we're told that the house was filled with the fragrance of this oil. And then we read that in the midst of all of that, that one of his disciples who was there, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray Jesus, said to Jesus, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said, he said that not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had it, the money box and he used to take what was in it. But Jesus said to Judas, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, 
but me you do not always have. Here it is in perfect timing. Here is Mary holding on to this valuable perfume. Here's Mary on this particular evening sitting there with Lazarus who had been raised from the dead and taking this oil and anointing the feet of Jesus. Preparing him for the burial that was to come. Not even realizing what she was being, what she was doing or even really being used by the Lord. Preparing him for his burial. Amazing. Perfect timing. All of these details have already been worked out. Saturday. It's still the Sabbath for the Jews. Jesus and his disciples, they would have probably kept the Sabbath traditional fashions that the the Jews would have done on that day. It was the day of rest. The next day was going to be Sunday, the first day of the week. It was going to be the start of what we're calling today the Passion Week. And in John's Gospel, we start in Verse 12, with Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And by chapter 19 of the Gospel of John, we see them laying Jesus in the tomb. From chapter 12 to chapter 19, we have this Passion Week. Sunday, the first day of the week. All four Gospels speak of this particular day that we call Palm Sunday. In John chapter 12, verse 12, it says, the next day there was a great multitude, and I want you to make note of that. There was a great multitude that had come to the feast. And when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, we're told that they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet Jesus And they began to cry out. And this is what they were crying out. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The king of Israel. And the people's voices were just shouting out. They were quoting from Psalm 118. Verse 26. And then Jesus when he had found a young donkey. He sat on it. And as it is written, we're told, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And here Jesus was fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. All of this predetermined. Jesus coming into Jerusalem on the back of that colt, just as it was prescribed and predetermined. In heaven. His disciples, they wouldn't even understand these things at first, we're told. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him when they when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead, were told that all of those people that were there that had actually been an eyewitness of Jesus raising him from the dead, they bore witness. 
They were there. This is the one we've been waiting for. He raised Lazarus from the dead. They bore witness of this. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. Do you see the perfect timing of that particular miracle and this particular time leading up to this event? And here's Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the back of a colt, the king of the Jews. And the people are bearing witness. This is the one we've been waiting for. But then we have the Pharisees that were there. And they, speaking amongst themselves, wanting to see Jesus destroyed. The Pharisees, speaking amongst themselves, they said, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. In a sense, they were disturbed over what they were. They were threatened by what they were seeing. The people, the multitude of people, they were acknowledging him as king. It's also important to know that Jesus on this day was officially presenting himself to the nation of Israel as their Messiah. And not only their Messiah, but a prophet. And not only a prophet, but a king. It's how Jesus came into this world as Messiah, prophet, and king. The prophet Zechariah, as I already quoted, he gave that prophecy 500 years before this day. It's on this day as Jesus rode into Jerusalem that he was fulfilling a 500 plus year old prophecy. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus, the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. The people that day, they welcomed Jesus with shouts of Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna to the son of David, they call him. Which is, in our English word, Hosanna, it actually means save us now. That's what the people were saying. Save us now. Hosanna, save us now, Jesus. They were praising him with their words from Psalm 118, 20, uh, 25 and 26. That says, save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. That's what the people were praising God for. This was the day, this is what they were waiting for. And all of those hopes were going to be shortly dashed. When they saw their king hanging on a cross, not many days later, we read in Luke's gospel, and I love this account. Luke brings out something about this day when Jesus rode in 
to Jerusalem and all the people were worshiping, all the people were spreading their, were told their clothes, even their overcoats on the, on the ground in front of the colt. They were laying these palm branches on the ground in front of, making and paving a way for their king to ride on that ascent down from the Mount of Olives and come into the city of Jerusalem. But then we're told that some of the Pharisees, they called to Jesus when all this was going on from the crowd. And they said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. I, when I read that, I can see this smile on the face of our Lord. I think that he had this, probably this smile from ear to ear. As these religious leaders were calling out to him to rebuke them for saying the things that they were saying. And Jesus here saying that if they stay silent, the very stones, and if you've ever been to Jerusalem, and I have, the whole place is littered with stones and rock that you walk on. These very stones will begin to cry out. We're told in Mark's gospel that on that day when Jesus went into Jerusalem, he entered into the temple area. He went through the east gate came into the Temple Mount area there where the temple stood. And we're told that Jesus began to look around. He began to observe what he saw there on the Temple Mount. And we're told that the hour was late. It was later on in the evening. And so he, we're told that he and his disciples, they left that day and they went back to Bethany with the twelve. Bethany was that small village just two miles away that they would walk from the city there of David and walk two miles, go up over the top of the Mount of Olives to the village of Bethany where they would stay there with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Monday, the next day, Jesus returns to Jerusalem. Him and his disciples get up and they make that two-mile journey back. Go back down the Mount of Olives, come back up the Kidron Valley on the other side, and walk through the East Gate into the temple area there in Jerusalem. This is where all the festivities were going on. This was Passover week. Jesus was there for the Passover festivities with his disciples. And it was on this day that Jesus would go in and he would cleanse the temple. We're told uh, about this in Matthew. We're talk about, it talks about it in Mark and Luke. Matthew 11 tells us now the next day when they had come out from Bethany, we're told that Jesus was hungry. So they're walking down this dirt pathway that leads up to the city and Jesus was hungry, we're told, which tells us of his humanity. And seeing afar off, here's Jesus seen in a distance. He sees this fig tree, and this fig tree had leaves upon it. And he went 
to see if perhaps he could find something on it. Speaking of some fruit. And when he came to it, he found nothing on it but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And in response, as Jesus stood there in front of this tree, with his disciples probably standing there with him, Jesus said these words as he spoke to the tree. He said, let no one eat from you ever again. And Jesus really at that time rebuked this fig tree in front of him. I think the disciples were afraid to ask what he just said. I think they were afraid to even go into that. Why did he say that? It wouldn't be till the next day that they would come to a little more understanding. We're told that when Jesus and his disciples had come to Jerusalem, they went into the temple area. And Jesus sees all these tables that are set up in the courtyard with the money changers. And they were all doing their business, selling animals and doves for the sacrifices that the people would buy and charging absorbent prices for them. And Jesus begins in righteous anger to go and turn over these money changers' tables. He's flipping these tables over. He takes the seats of those that are selling doves. And he begins to chase them out of the temple. Can you see Jesus doing that? Chasing these people out of the temple court area. In Mark's eleven seventeen, we're told that Jesus said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. He was quoting from Isaiah 56, verse 7. For this particular day, at this particular moment, here's Jesus quoting to them his own words, Isaiah 56, verse 7. I don't think things were going very well for Jesus at this point. The chief priests, the elders, they were confronting him and they did confront him on this day. They heard Jesus referring to Isaiah the prophet. And they were, that he was even claiming this messianic authority. And how they heard that was because he called this place my house. Jesus called it my house. And they asked Jesus on that day, who gave you this authority? Could you imagine that? Who gave you the authority to call this my house? Jesus that day, after all that commotion, would leave the temple again and he would return to Bethany. It's Tuesday now, just four days before the cross. Jesus makes his way from Bethany again, back to Jerusalem. We read in Mark eleven twenty. now in the morning as they pass by, we're told they saw the fig tree that Jesus had cursed the day before. They saw it dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. And Jesus answered 
and said to them. What's awesome is how the Lord, his perfect timing, he left this message for them for the next day. As they observed this withered fig tree, a picture really of Israel, a tree with leaves on it and no fruit. But Jesus says to them, have faith in God. For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you of your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Here's Jesus speaking to his people, the ones whom he came to save, the one whom he loves, giving them instruction from this withered fig tree that stood before them. He gives them a lesson on prayer and on forgiveness. That day, when Jesus arrived and entered the temple area, he was confronted by a series of questions that would come from the religious leaders. The chief priests were there, the scribes and the elders. And as each day was going on, things were getting more and more intense. It was on this day that Jesus began to speak to the people in parables and to personally confront these religious leaders that were there also. He shared the parable about the wicked vine dresser, which was directly pointing to these religious leaders. And then he sent the Pharisees uh, and the Herodians uh, to them, to Jesus, to catch him in his words. And Jesus answered the question about paying taxes to Caesar. They sent, uh, they also had the Sadducees come. And the Sadducees, remember, the ones that didn't believe in a resurrection. And they thought, we're going to tra trap Jesus in this question. They come to him with these questions about the resurrection, trying to trick him with a question. Jesus also that day on, in the, that temple mount, he pronounced seven woes against the scribes and the Pharisees. I wouldn't want to be one that had a woe pronounced against me. But these scribes and these Pharisees, the Lord pronounced these seven woes against them. And then... The scribes, the interpreters of the law, they came to Jesus and they tried to trick him by asking which is the first commandment of all. Trying to trick Jesus in the question. He was the giver of the law. And here's these scribes trying to trap him in a question. He also sat that day and he watched the people putting money in the treasury. He saw the hypocrisy of many people there that day. But then he saw this one poor woman who came and gave all that she had. 
And Jesus said to his disciples in Mark 12, 43, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor woman, this poor widow, has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. You see, that's what the Lord is looking for. He's looking for us to give our all, not out of our abundance, but to give when it hurts, to give of ourself to the Lord. That's what pleases the Lord. Then on the return to Bethany that day, the disciples, they were loaded down with a bunch of questions. They walked out of that east gate and they looked at the temple buildings. And they began to marvel at the beauty of the temple and the temple buildings that stood there. And we're told that Jesus said to his disciples in that moment, do you not see all of these things? He says, assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. That would have shook their world. For Jesus to say that not one stone of all of these beautiful Ephesus will be torn down stone by stone. Would have shooken these disciples up. They waited though. They walked out of that east gate. They went down and came up the, up the Mount of Olives. And when they got up to the Mount of Olives overlooking the city. Jesus, we're told, sat down. His disciples came over to him. And began to inquire with Jesus about what he had just said. We know that Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple. And that did happen in 70 AD. That temple was taken down stone by stone. Just as Jesus had said it would. He gave them the signs of the times in the end of the age. Which is still yet to come by the way. He talked about the great tribulation and the second coming of Jesus Christ on this occasion. He warned them to be wise, to be watchful, to be ready, for you do not know the day or the hour. Jesus is preparing these men, even in this discussion, even in this what's called the Olivet Discourse. He's preparing them for what's to come. And then we read in Matthew 26, 1, Now it came to pass... When Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. He's telling them in advance. We come to Wednesday and not much is said. This has been referred to as the silent day for Jesus in Scripture. There wasn't anything really recorded of this day, but this is what we do know that possibly happened on that day. This was the day that Judas was going to be, be uh, bribed to be the one who would betray Jesus. We read in Matthew 26, 14, then one of the twelve, 
called Judas Iscariot. He went to the chief priests and he said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver Jesus to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray Jesus. We come to Thursday, Passover, the Last Supper. It's the day of preparation for the Jews. We read in Mark's gospel in chapter 15, the, pa the Passover was going to begin that evening. For the Jew, the next day uh, began at sunset. And so really on Thursday evening was really Friday for the Jew. Peter and John were sent out that probably that morning making preparation for the Passover meal. And then after sunset, Jesus would sit with his disciples and partake of that Passover meal, just as he had done many times with them. He would take the role of a servant that night and he would wash his disciples' feet. Judas would also be exposed that night and he would go out into the darkness. Jesus would institute the Lord's Supper that night with his disciples. He would also speak and, and pray some of the most intimate words that we read in Scripture. In John 14, to chapter 14 to chapter 17, all red letters, Jesus speaking, Jesus praying. This was all happening there that night. He would leave the upper room that night with his disciples and he would make his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is referred to as the olive press where Jesus would agonize in prayer that night. And while Jesus was praying in the garden, this mob was being formed to go and arrest Jesus. We read in John 18, 3, then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers uh, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they came with their lanterns and their torches and their weapons there to uh, arrest Jesus. Jesus' prayer was, in a sense, interrupted that night with the sound of troops coming. Coming and then being led by Judas Iscariot, who would walk up to Jesus and give him a kiss on the cheek that would mark him out as the one we need to arrest. They would take Jesus that night back into the city. They would take him to the house of the high priest Annas. And they would also have the Sanhedrin that would have been there also waiting for Jesus' arrival that night. There was going to be a trial this night. It wasn't going to be a legal trial, but it was going to be a, a trial they're going to try to find reason that they might put Jesus to death. It's now late Thursday night. And Jesus in John 18 would stand before Annas, who was the former high priest and the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the current reigning high priest. And he began to ask Jesus questions about his disciples and about his doctrine. And this is how Jesus answered Annas. I spoke to you openly to the world. 
I always taught in synagogues in the temple where the Jews always met. And in secret, I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when Jesus had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, do you answer the high priest like that? And Jesus answered him, if I have spoken evil, then bear witness of the evil. But if well, then why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And now while this trial was going on, Peter was outside. He was warming himself in the courtyard by the fire. He was getting questioned, are you one of his followers also? And it would be that night that that cock would crow. It would be that evening that Jesus said and the fulfillment of what Jesus said to Peter that night would take place. Jesus was taken after all of that false trials he would be taken after that to the praetorium he'd be taken to this uh, housing if you want to say for the Roman guard the elite Roman guard that housed themselves in the praetorium which was on the north side of the temple mount that overlooked the temple mount they take Jesus to that place where Jesus was going to be mocked and cruelly treated in that place by these Roman guards. The Praetorium. I've been into that place, what's left of it. The pavement. The place where Jesus spilled his blood as they did all sorts of things to the Lord in that place. These Romans. That brings us to the early morning of Friday. We call it Good Friday. Good Friday's coming this week. This is the start. In coming this Friday, we call it Good Friday as Christians. And I want to say that the only people that that makes sense to are the people who believe. Uh, Good Friday. What happened on Good Friday? To us who believe, to those who know what Christ accomplished on that cross, even with all of the brutality of it, we know that it's Good Friday. We know that what it means to us that have been forgiven. All of this happening in just this one day Jesus, there in the praetorium, Jesus would then make his way to the cross. And I'm not going to get into any of those details. I'm going to leave that for whatever the Lord leads Kyle, Pastor Kyle, on Friday. I encourage you to all come out. Continue this. And we're leading up to Resurrection Sunday. 
We're going to be gathering here at the church for a sunrise service out on the front yard on Sunday morning. Sunrise. We're going to go out there to celebrate as Christians. I encourage you all to come out and bring people with you. Bring people that don't know the Lord. Bring people out to this place that they might hear a message that they might be saved. We're going to gather for that sunrise service as a body of Christ. And then we're going to have a breakfast that we're going to provide down here in the fellowship hall. We're going to eat together, and then we're going to come back into the service. This service is going to be an all-family service. We're not going to have child care that Sunday, uh, next Sunday. It'll be an all-family service. You can bring your kids in here. And we're going to worship together. Resurrection Sunday. Celebration time for us as Christians. The reality of your faith is summed up in that. If there is no resurrection, Christians, we're the most miserable people on the face of this earth because we're following after a Jesus Christ. And if there is no resurrection from the dead, then we might as well just throw it all in. It's why we're, we're celebrating. And so bring people out. Come yourself and bring people with you. I'm excited. I don't know if you can tell, but I'm excited about my relationship with Jesus Christ, and I hope you are too. We have much to say to this world that is a hurting world. I heard a testimony from my wife yesterday of just a woman standing at the dollar store with a countenance that looked like there was no hope when she asked this young woman if she could pray for her, she says, I don't, what do you say? I don't believe he hears. I don't believe he hears or, you know, but if you want to pray, go ahead. But if you want to pray, go ahead and pray. People, we have the message. We have the hope. We can tell somebody that is in that state that they can have the hope of eternal life. God has given you the remedy. My prayer is that God would go before us this week, that you'd be sensitive to the fact that we are in a week that we call the Passion Week, that you'd be sensitive to the fact that there are people out there that are hurting, that do not have hope, that do not know what you know. Look for opportunity. Be bold in your faith. Stand up for Christ and share your faith. And so let's all stand. I'm going to have the worship team come up and closes in a worship song. If you're here this morning, as I shared in the beginning, and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I didn't ask you, do you know about Jesus Christ? I'm asking you, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? I didn't ask you if you just believe there was a Jesus or you believe about God, but do you have a personal relationship with the living God? Have you invited him to come inside of you? And are you born again? Do you know with 100% certainty that if you were to die today, that you would go in immediately into the presence of the Lord? If you cannot answer that question, 
with 100% assurance in your own heart, then come up and see me and we'll pray and God will forgive and you can have eternal life today. And so let's worship uh, the Lord from our hearts. And then uh, Pastor Kyle will close us out in prayer.